Well, that's kind of cool. To have an old guy preaching and then do a throwback hymn. That's like one of my favorite songs of all time. And, and so that, that was just wonderful. Thanks for that time in worship. It's great to be here with you. And uh, we've kind of tracked your history as God uh, launched this church and followed along. And I really appreciate this invitation to preach. Ian and I share the same seminary background, although I was there when he was just a young boy, I think. I was there very early on, but as God moved Ian out of the Master's Seminary to Harvest, we kind of started connecting, and it just had been such a joy, and we just, uh, Cindy and I just so love him and Sarah. I know you all know you're very blessed in this church with the pastor God has brought you and his wife. Uh, it's encouraging to me as an older guy to see these younger ones who have, could do so many things in the world, and the gifting and the capability and the capacity, and yet God has called them to give their lives to the kingdom. And so it's wonderful joy to watch and see how God uses them. Ian has a uniquely gifted theological and biblical mind, but it's so exciting to see that combined with a heart of humility and dependence and, and just exalting the name of Christ. And so I just really thank you for this invitation. It's a distinct honor to stand in this man's pulpit and be a part of this church. And so I encourage you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 4. And uh, as you're turning there, I want to confess, I really, really enjoy a good love story. My wife, Cindy, has never been into any, we don't see a lot of movies, but she won't see action or adventure movies at all. So I get drawn to what they call the chick flicks quite frequently. And I, I kind of confess, and I might lose my man card over this, I really enjoy most of them. And I'm a crier by nature. I can cry at the drop of a hat, and I will confess, I've cried through many of those love stories. But one of my favorite love stories comes from the Bible, and probably you know the story well. In the Old Testament, it's the minor prophet Hosea. And it's a really a unique love story for a number of reasons. And if you aren't familiar, just let me remind you, God calls this single man, this godly man, his prophet Hosea, to marry a woman. And it's a specific woman he calls Hosea to marry. Her name's Gomer. And if you want, if you're having a little girl and you don't want anybody else in the class to have her name, there's a name guaranteed. And Probably don't want to name her that because Gomer's known for being an immoral and unfaithful woman. She was that before, it seems, before uh, Hosea married her. God called him to marry her. God's giving uh, Israel an object lesson in this whole thing. And so he marries her. They have three children together. It seems for sure at least one, if not two or three of those children came from another man and not Hosea. And yet through all of that unfaithfulness, Hosea continues to love Gomer with an unconditional love. Numerous times she leaves him, and he goes and seeks her and brings her back. And the last time, it seems from the text, she ends up in slavery to another man. Probably best understanding is she sold herself into prostitution, and is so often that results in the woman being enslaved to some man. And the text says that Homer went, or Hosea went and bought her out, redeemed her out of her slavery, brought her home, and loved her again. It's an amazing love story of a man's unconditional and unbelievable love for an unfaithful partner. You see, that's a love story that God was giving Israel to remind them of his gracious forgiveness for them as a nation and his willingness to forgive them and love them. And that's a part of the story I'm in because I'm like her, that unfaithful one who God, my father, has loved me with an unconditional love. 
It's my prayer this morning that that would encourage your soul. As we look at Romans chapter 4, it's a wonderful account as Paul's encouraging the Romans here of the, the nature of their salvation and where their hope should lie. And I've entitled the sermon, Hope for the Weary. And I believe so many Christians who have come to true faith in Christ never find the rest in their souls because they mix up some theological understandings and they never really experience the love our Father has for us because of the work of Jesus Christ. And so let me read Romans chapter 4, 1 to 8, and then we're going to walk through these verses together. And so let me read this. You can look in your Bibles, Romans 4, 1. Then what shall we say... Then, sorry, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we humble ourselves before you and we we just rejoice in the words we've sung, such amazing truth, such encouraging words and thoughts of who you are and what you've done. And so, Father, now as we open your word, I, I just pray that, Father, I pray first of all that anything that's not of you and of your word, you just purge out of my thoughts and my voice. I pray you'd give uh, discerning ears to each listener that we would look to your word as the authority. But, Father, where what is said tracks with your word is accurate to your word. I pray you would encourage us. I pray specifically for those here today who would honestly say, I, I have no rest in my salvation and no joy. Or I lose it so frequently. I pray that you would bring encouragement. You'd breathe oxygen into their souls today through your word. I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to each one personally and powerfully through your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what I want to do is structure our time in these verses with three questions. Paul, in writing to the Romans, he'd never visited the church in Rome. He's writing saying, I'd like to come and visit you. He knows of the church. He's heard a lot about the church. And he writes, and you know probably chapter 1 pretty well, very famous. And chapter 1, verses sort of 16 through 32 are kind of targeting the Gentiles in Rome, both Christian Gentiles and those not Christians. Then in chapter 2, verse 1, he turns his attention to the Jews, the religious Jews. And he goes after them. If you've ever read through chapter 2 and then chapter 3 and then chapter 4, we're just preaching through. We're into chapter 6 now in Romans. And chapter 2, 3, and 4, it's like he's pounding on them over and over on the sense that the religious Jews were trusting in their tradition and their religion to save them. And so Paul, what he does when he gets to chapter 3 is he starts asking questions. He's writing a letter to them, but he knows what they're going to think when they read his letter. Because Paul had been in synagogue after synagogue and, and city after city. He had talked to untold countless number of people. He knew how they think. And so as he writes a letter, he writes something, a true statement, and then he says, now, I know you're going to ask this question, so let me ask it and answer it. And that's what he does all through here. You can see it in the text in various places. There's all these questions. Chapter 3, verse 1, what then advantage has the Jew? 
Chapter 3, verse 9, what then? Are we Jews any better off? And he goes on, and you'll see all these questions as he's, he knows what they're thinking, and he knows sort of where their hearts are going. And so it's, I think it's proper in chapter 4, because uh, he asks another question in 4.1, what shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? And so I'm going to sort of structure our time with three questions. First question is this, can we save ourselves? Now, I know if you're a part of this church for any length of time, you know the answer to that already. You're going, what does he think we believe at this church? Is he thinking he's here correcting anything? No, but I just want to remind you because so often we get the truth, but then it slips out of our hearts and minds as we seek to walk the Christian life. All right, and so, so here he's, he's going after this issue of salvation is not by work. And we would, we would say keeping our salvation and walking in our faith is also not by works, but it's by grace. But we mix this up so often. And Paul comes right to the example of Abraham. He's going after the religious Jews in Rome. And so he goes right to the pinnacle of their history. Father Abraham, the ultimate Jew. The one who started the whole thing through whom God started the whole thing. And so he goes right to them, to Abraham. And then really he's, he's just like nailing this issue of where does our salvation come from? He's hit it over and over, chapter 2, verse cha chapter 3. But again, 4, he's going to go after. He says in verse 2, if Abraham was justified by works, if Abraham did something to save himself, if Abraham did something to make himself presentable to God, acceptable to God, he said, as Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. And we get that. It makes sense, right? If you cleaned up your life and you made yourself presentable to God, then you have something to say, I've done a good job. I've done it. And you're boasting in yourself. But then he makes this little statement, but not before God. The reality is we can boast before other people, cleaned up my life, improved my life, made myself a better person. We can boast about that to each other, but never before God, because none of that, no matter how religious, no matter what practices, no matter what traditions, no matter how you pay it forward, no matter anything you do, can ever move you one inch to being more acceptable to God. And so he's, he's just kind of nailing this using Abraham as an example. And then he says in verse 3, and I love this, He's quoting scripture. The ultimate authority I know in this church is what? God's word, scripture. And he's doing that. He's quoting Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. And he says, what does scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was what? Counted to him as righteousness. It's a wonderful reminder. Then verse 4, now to the one who works... If you're working, your wages are not counted as a gift, but his due. When you go to work on Monday, and you work all day, and then they give you a paycheck, you don't accept it as a gift, you accept it as what is due, because you were owed it because of the labor you put in. And so Paul's saying here, if Abraham was saved and made himself acceptable to God because of what he did, then there's no gift involved. He's contrasting a gift with labor and a proper pay for labor. And so the whole thing is just nailing this idea of how are we saved? We're saved by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's a what? Gift of God. And so he's pointing to Abraham. It's, it's been the same in the Old Testament as in the New, New Testament. Never changed. Everybody since Adam and Eve have been saved who are saved by the grace, by faith in God, never by making themselves acceptable, never by obeying the law. But the Jews had become so distorted on this. They had so twisted this, you would not believe how weird it got in their whole thing. 
Salvation is a gift of God or it's something we earn. I like this word counted that he's quoting Genesis 15, 6, and he uses this word a number of times in our verses, counted. That word counted is a legal or accounting term, and it's the idea of crediting something to your account. So if you look at your bank account, you have withdrawals and deposits. Sadly, most of us have far more withdrawals than deposits, right? And if you get more money being withdrawn than deposited, you know you're in trouble. And we have a bit of that problem in the province of Ontario and in the country of Canada, far more withdrawals than deposits. But this word here, Abraham's faith was a deposit into his account that was so massive, so significant, it completely wiped out all of the withdrawals. God did something in Abraham's life, nothing to do with Abraham and what he did. God gave a gift that was so significant through the faith of Abraham that Abraham was counted as righteous. He was, when God looked at him, he declared him righteous. It's such a wonderful idea here. It's a gift. Romans chapter 3, verse 24. Paul's writing there, and I loved working through this part of chapter 3, verse 24. And we are justified by his grace as what? As a gift. Isn't that wonderful? You understand? Any standing you have with the Lord, any relationship, your salvation is entirely 100% a gift from God. I love verse 23, we all know it, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we are justified, those who are by his grace as a gift, through what? The redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Chapter 5, verse 17, Paul writes there about this same idea. And he's talking, contrasting Adam and how Adam sinned. One sin brought death to the whole human race, but through the act of one man, Jesus Christ, it brought life. In verse 17, for if by one man's trespass, Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more, that little phrase is used a number of times in chapter 5, contrasting the destruction of one man, Adam, but the incredible abundance of grace of God, and so how much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Now, I know you understand that. It's important to understand that, that you're saved by grace. It's nothing you can do. Abundant, amazing, supernatural grace. That's why we love to sing about grace. Do you love to sing about grace? Still, I think my all-time favorite song is Amazing Grace. It shocks me, though, when I watch people on TV and Hollywood people at some events singing, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch. None of them believe they're a wretch. Do you understand that? I mean, I, all I have done is sin against holy God, but in his grace, he's fully, completely redeemed me and saved me and forgiven me. And that's what Paul's going at here because the Jews just did not get that. Just to help further illustrate this with Abraham is verses 9 to 11, he talks about circumcision. I was actually going to preach verses 9 to 11, and I thought, well, maybe it's not the best idea to be a guest preacher and preach on circumcision. But, but look at what he says there. It's, he's still on Abraham. Is this blessing, what blessing? The gift of righteousness, the gift of forgiveness, the gift of salvation. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? You see, the Jews believed without a doubt, if you were not circumcised as a man, you could not be saved. And so Paul asking the question, is this only for the circumcised, this salvation, this forgiveness, or is it also for those who aren't circumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. And then look, at he asks the question, how then was it counted to him? 
We read in, uh, in chapter 3, or verse 3, that quoting Genesis 15, that Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. Paul says, how was it counted to him as righteousness? And then he says, was it before or after he had been circumcised? Now, this is really interesting. Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. Was he considered counted righteous before he was circumcised or after? We don't talk about that a lot in the church today, but Paul's going after religious Jews because they had messed it up so badly. They believed Abraham was righteous because he followed the law and he was circumcised. Now you're saying, well, we don't believe that today. No, but how many churches are filled with how many people today who believe you have to practice certain religious traditions in order to be saved? I mean, it's rampant. And it sneaks into churches like ours where we start thinking, you know what? I have to perform. I have to be good. I have to do this and this. Otherwise, God doesn't love me. God can't like me. God doesn't accept me. We slip into it so often as well. Here he's going after the Jews. They were so messed up on this circumcision, it got so twisted in their thinking. They actually, there was a group who actually formed a party, like a club or an organization called the Party of the Circumcision. I've often thought, what was their jacket and the crest on their jacket, you know? Was it a scalpel or a pair of scissors? You know, when they greeted each other, snip, 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 snip to you too. Like, it's crazy, isn't it? But they actually had a group who were known as the party of the circumcision. They show up in the book of Acts when, when there was all, you know, the gospel spreading to all sorts of places and the Jews are having all sorts of trouble with Gentiles coming to faith in Christ. In Acts chapter 15, a group come from another area back to the first church in Jerusalem and it says in Acts 15, 1, some men, perhaps a part of the party of the circumcision, came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the customs of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, really? I mean, one author called this salvation by surgery. But that's what they were believing. It was rampant in their day. Some Jewish sources from back then, the book of Jubilees. It was written sometime between 100 and 200 AD. It is not inspired. It's not a part of the Bible. Written alongside a lot of what was written in the Bible in the same time period. And so it's historical information about what the Jews thought. A quote from this book of Jubilee. Everyone that is born of the flesh whose foreskin is not circumcised on the eighth day belongs not to the children of the covenant which the Lord made with, with Abraham. He belongs to the children of destruction, nor is there moreover any sign on him that he's the Lord's, but he's destined to be destroyed and slain from the earth simply because he didn't have an external sign of circumcision. Another Jewish commentary from those days says, circumcision saves from hell. Another one said, God swore to Abraham that no one who was uncircumcised, or no one who was circumcised should be sent to hell. Still another commentary from back then that the Jews all embraced, Abraham sits before the gate of hell and does not allow any circumcised Israelite to enter there. Now they believe that. One said the idea is if a circumcised Jewish male goes into apostasy, his circumcision is miraculously reversed because you cannot be in hell and be circumcised. Talk about twisting the truth of the Old Testament. Talk about distorting the whole how are we rightly related with God. This is what Paul's trying to confront. It was still so active in Rome in the day and age of Paul's planting churches. So important to understand this. 
Listen, let me just show you why in verses 9 to 11 does Paul talk about when was Abraham circumcised. We have a chart here, a little timeline. Hopefully you can read this. I don't, maybe the font's too small. And uh, I didn't know how far the screen would be. But we have Abraham's second covenant. The covenant was given to Abraham initially in chapter 12 of Genesis. Chapter 15, Abraham's about 85 years old when chapter 15 of Genesis happens. About that. We know it was sometime before Ishmael was born when he was 86 years old. Then we get to, he's circumcised in chapter 17 of Genesis, and he's 99 years old. So there's some 14 years between Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness when Abraham was circumcised. So how could he be saved by his circumcision? You see, that's why Paul's going to that in 9 to 11. Just think of the timeline of your history, Jews. It's impossible for it to mean that some act or work he did got him saved because that didn't come for some 14 years later. The law didn't come for some 425 years later. So Abraham could not have been saved, but the Jews literally believed Abraham was saved by keeping the law and being circumcised. And Paul, just doing a simple history lesson, says you could not be more wrong. So the the reality is, the question is, how can we save ourselves? We can't save ourselves. But how many people go to churches in our cities, in our culture right now, who think by going to church, by doing penance, by giving money, by religious tradition, by practicing certain things, that I'm making myself acceptable to God? And sadly, how many of us think, you know what, by doing my Bible reading and praying prayers and attending worship service and and, and doing some of these Christian things, that I'm making myself more acceptable to God? Or because I've had a bad week or a bad month, God obviously can't love me, is obviously displayed with me. There's no way he's going to hear anything from me. We fall into some of this faulty thinking so often. Can we save ourselves? No. We would say salvation is a gift from God. It's all of God. Second question, I'm going to jump down to verse 6. I'm going to skip verse 5. Is that allowed? Ian never does that. Ian always goes in order through the text. I don't think it's acceptable to skip a verse. Trust me, I'm going to come back to verse 5, okay? I'm not just like, sometimes as a preacher, you're like, I just like to skip that verse. That's really, that's going to get me in trouble with somebody. I'm not doing that, okay? I'll come back to it. And and in verses 6 to 8, I actually want to start with 7. Go 7, 8, and then back to 6, and back to 5. Some of you, that'll drive you nuts, but uh, you'll get through it, okay? So the, the question is, can we save ourselves? No. Now the question I want to ask and answer is, what's the result of true salvation? we can't save ourselves it's all of God and we're going to answer the question how do I get saved that's verse 5 but now I just want to look at the results first of salvation and then we'll come back to how do I get this thing of salvation all right now I just want to look verse 7 there's three points Paul makes here and I just want to give them in this order I just think it'll help us with our clarity verse 7 blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered Paul here is quoting from Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. What what wonderful words. Just let these words sink into your own heart and mind. How blessed are those whose lawless deeds. That means we're rebels. 
You understand? That's not popular. I know you get the word straight up here. It's not popular today to tell people. We are lawbreakers. We're rebels. We're rebellious. We're disobedient. We've gone our own way. We've done our own thing. And here Paul is saying how blessed, not those who keep the law, not those who practice religious traditions, how blessed are those, though, whose rebellion is forgiven and whose sins, the missing the mark, the common word for sin, are covered. Such a wonderful idea. I love the word covered. It's, it's such a beautiful picture. Uh, uh, back to the Old Testament of the blood, right? And the sacrifice and the blood. And, and, but it's interesting, the word covered here doesn't mean just like you put a blanket over something because some of us are a little worried about that. That my sins are covered, but it doesn't take much to uncover them and there I am guilty again. The word covered here means like put out of God's sight, completely removed, It's such a wonderful, encouraging word he's using here. Listen, do you understand this? My past sins, we all can go, okay, I can get that. My past sins are covered. My present sins, I hope I didn't sin this morning, but I don't know, probably 50-50. My present sins and my future sins. Do you realize that? Do you get that? The grace of God that even... He, he knows I'm going to sin again. Not just a sin of omission, but sadly in my messed up sort of state, I am going to choose, knowing all I know about what it costs, just Easter celebration hit me again in our Easter service and Good Friday, the cost to Christ of my sin, knowing all of that, I'm still going to very likely within the next week choose to sin all of that, all of that. Do you understand this? All of it, every one of them is covered completely over and forgiven. He blesses us by forgiving our sin. It's paid for. That's one of my favorite verses, especially after preaching through 2 Corinthians we did last year. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Do you understand on the cross that those words, it is finished? So many of us, we get that, but then we don't get that. We lose sight of that. It's finished. Your sins are completely gone. But now look at verse 8. God blesses us by forgiving our sin, and then God blesses us by declaring us not guilty. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. God will not ever put a deposit in your account for your sin. He put a, he counted us. We're going to see verse 6. We're going to back up. He counts us righteous. Here's the side of, listen, even though I still sin and struggle with sin, even though my sins are countless to me, even though that's all true, I haven't done a thing to undo my sin, but God in his grace has forgiven my sin And he's chosen never again to count even one of my sins against me. Do you understand that? They're wiped out. I can't wait. We're going to hit Romans. Uh, We're on schedule to finish Romans 8 this spring. And then we're going to start Romans 9 in September. Not a good idea to start Romans 9 and kick off in September. If you know Romans 9, you know why. If you don't, go home and read it. And you'll go, yeah, that's not a good idea to start Romans 9 in September. So we're going to finish with 7 this spring and then start 8 next fall. But chapter 8, verse 1, you know it? Do you know it? There's now therefore no what? Condemnation. For those who are in Christ. Do you understand that's true about you? 
Do you understand that is finished and complete and a hundred percent done? God never looks at you even though you sinned again last night. God never looks at you and holds that sin against you. He never counts even one of our sins against us. Why? Because every sin, past, present, and future, every sin in my life was placed on Jesus on the cross. And he paid for it fully. I don't know about you, but when I grew up, I remember many preachers saying that when you get to the judgment seat of Christ, there's going to be a screen like that. And when you stand before him, all your sins are going to be displayed on that screen for him and everybody to see. And I remember the fear it put in him. He's like, I don't want a lot of stuff showing on a screen. And listen, for someone who's not saved, that concept, they're being judged for their sin. But do you understand at the judgment seat of Christ, for you who are in Christ Jesus, Never will one sin ever be brought up. Never. Nor will it be brought up today or next week. God doesn't, he's forgiven them all. He's covered over them all. They, they are all dealt with completely. He will never hold one of And some of you are going like, you know, well, that's pretty good news. So I can go out, you're telling me, I can go out and do whatever I want. It'll never be held against me. Just saying, if you're thinking that right now, you're in a very dangerous place because now you're doing what Paul's talks warns about. If you want to presume upon the grace of God, you haven't even begun to understand salvation. So I'm not giving anybody a license to say just go sin and act however you want. But if you are truly saved, do you understand the miracle of the gift of grace? That even though we still sin and struggle with sin and will till the day we go home to glory, Never will it be held against us. Nothing will be placed in that column against us anymore. All is completely paid for. Now back up to verse 6, because he's not done yet with the blessing. He's quoting David here, and, and he says, just as David speaks of the blessing to whom one God counts what? Righteousness. So God will not count my sin against me, but there's the other side of it, is God counts righteousness to me. God will never place into my account again any condemnation because of my sin, but God places into my account. He counts against, he reckons me righteous. You know, the, the theological term for this is justification, right? And I grew up always understanding justification is just as if I never sinned. Well, that's really incomplete because verse 7 and 8 are talking about the fact justification is that God looks at me as if I never sinned. I'm a sinner. I'm a guilty sinner. I stand rightly condemned if God wanted to condemn me. I am responsible for all of my sin. I am rightly under wrath and judgment in my natural state. It's just for God to condemn me to all eternity in hell because I've sinned against a holy, eternal God, and I did so willingly. But he looks at me, that guilty person, and says, I do not hold even one of those sins against you because Jesus paid it all. But he's not done there. Justification is he also now looks at me and places on me. He declares me not only not guilty, but now he declares me perfectly holy. He declares me to have the righteousness of Jesus. Do you understand every time Jesus obeyed his parents as a young boy, did he always perfectly obey his parents? Yes. Every time Jesus perfectly interacted with anybody, friend or anybody, every time Jesus was perfectly holy with the opposite gender, every time Jesus was perfect in his worship and perfect in his service, and did Jesus live a perfect life, always doing right? 
Nod your head, yes, that's the right answer. Right? The, the, the lamb without stain, without blemish. You just celebrate Easter. All of that, obedience, holiness, righteousness, is mine. You see why Paul used the word blessed? Blessed is the wretched sinner who has no merit in and of him or herself, but is declared by God as a massive act of grace, not guilty, and a saint, fully righteous, holy. Is that not wonderful? I mean, God looks at me as pure. Is he 100% ethical? You say, well, is he, does he realize you still sin? He does, but it's never counted against me. It's never held against me. Do you under, that, like, just let that, that's who you are right now. That's your standing before God as his son or daughter. I think we lose sight of this so often. This is what is so amazing about grace. But now let's answer the third question. How can I experience this blessing? How can I be a part? If it's not by works, if it's not by anything I do, and if it's that kind of blessing, not just now but for all eternity, that kind of blessing, how can I experience it? Now we'll back up to verse 5. And to the one who does not work, what? But believes in him. Who's the him? Tell me his name. Jesus. And to the one who does not work but believes in him, Jesus, who what? Justifies the ungodly. His faith, the one who believes, his or her faith is what? Counted as righteousness. See, see here's the thing I think we, we struggle with. Justification, we mess it up and mix it up with sanctification. And when we do that, it robs us of our joy and our delight and our rest in our salvation. And I think that's rampant in churches just like ours. I'll tell you straight up, I see very few people, often myself included, who have the true rest and delight in the secure and final finished work of Jesus Christ. Remember Matthew chapter 11, Jesus, it's interesting, he's, he's, he's in these cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida. These are up around the Sea of Galilee. He spent a lot of time around these cities and he declares a woe on these cities in Matthew chapter 11 because they had so rejected his message and his offer of salvation. And so these are, now what's interesting is these are highly Jewish cities. There was actually three of them, and, and Capernaum, I think, is the other. And he's been spent a lot of time there, a lot of time preaching and proclaiming and doing miracles. And he declares a woe on these two cities of Chorazim and Bethsaida. And they're highly Jewish. They're steeped in the Jewish belief, and they've tied in all of the work salvation stuff. And then Jesus says these words. That's the context. And in verse 28 to to 30 of Matthew 11. Come to me, all who, what? Labor or are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Why does he say it that way? Because if you're caught up in a work salvation, if you're in a church in Canada that's all about you've got to be good enough, dress a certain way, practice certain religious traditions, read your Bible enough time, pray enough prayers, give enough money, that is an exhausting endeavor that never gets satisfied. 
And that's what the Jews were wrapped up in because not just a, a circumcision, but all of their go to the temple and offer your sacrifice and all the purification. It was an exhausting. Why? Because not, you might be working on paying for what you've already done, but you're going to do more wrong. And it's just this endless cycle of exhaustion, of trying to make yourself good enough for God to accept you. And so Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are weary, who are laboring, trying to earn your way and come to me and, and, and give all of that up and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am what gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. I believe that's a message that we need in our Christian churches today. I really do. It's so sad to see because so many of us get caught up in I've got to be this, I've got to do that. Man, I, the church doors are open. I've got to be, I grew up in that. I grew up, like every time the church doors were open, we were there. And there was a certain joy in that. But it became a burden of we're trying to make ourselves somehow acceptable and all of this sort of thing. Listen, the religious Jews, the tradition, the practices, the laws, the temple, what I do, what I don't do, it had become so much in their way of thinking and so many today in our churches are exhausted and they're just relentlessly running, trying to do enough to earn God's favor, to be acceptable to God, even after they've been saved. So many of us are exhausting ourselves in trying to keep ourselves acceptable to Him. And this invitation by Jesus is so radical, so relational. Stop trying, stop running. In me, you will find joy and delight and refreshment and rest. Well, wait a minute. I thought harvest had these three W's. Worship, walk, and what? Work for Christ. Are you telling us we don't have to work? Is that what? Okay, I can give up children's ministry. I can give up, the, you know, set up and take down. God bless you, set up and take down. We did 15 and a half years of set up and take down. We just got in a building this fall. And there, our, our set up and take, some of our people did that from day one. And they were ready for rest. Are you telling me we don't have to serve? That's not what we're talking about at all. That flows out of our salvation in Christ. That's a joyful response to what God has done. That's not in any... Listen, do you understand? God doesn't love you more, accept you more, embrace you more, or bless you more because you're serving Him. That's all settled in your salvation. But we mix the two up. I mean, I, I struggle with the preaching. I know Nia never does, but I do. Sometimes as I'm sitting there during the songs, they're singing, and you know, I'm starting, my fleshly mind is like, I've had a pretty good week, and God, so I've had a pretty, I've been in the Word, I've been praying, I, I don't think there's been any open apparent sin, and, and so God, like, you're going to come through, this is going to be a great sermon. And then other weeks, I'm just desperately praying now, it's been a terrible week, and God, I don't even deserve, I should not be stepping on the podium, I should just go to my office and repent in, in dust and ashes, but God, I'm asking you, like, that's crazy thinking. Really? So God's way of interacting with me, his son, is based on how I perform and how I do. You see how we mix up justification and sanctification? How it robs us of so much? Verse 5, I love the wording here. This is wonderful. And to the one who does not work, can I say to you here, if you're checking out this whole idea of the Christian faith and all of this, can I tell you, you need to come to the place where you abandon all self-effort. 
You cannot make yourself good. You cannot do enough religious traditions, practices. You can't pay it forward enough. You need to understand the reality of what we saw in verses 7 and 8. That you are a lawless person. That we are, we are rebels at heart. You, you need to come to, well, that's not very good news to me. How dare you say that to me? I'm not saying it to you. Your creator is. It's the truth. This is why Paul, read chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, relentlessly pounding on the Jewish people primarily. You've got to understand everything you put in the plus column is not in the plus column. Why he says in verse 5, to the one who does not work, but what? Believes. Listen, how, how, do I, how do I experience this blessing? First, you abandon all self-effort and you acknowledge the truth that I have sinned against my Creator. That I am rightly under condemnation and wrath. That I am a rebel. That I, I stand guilty. You, this world that promotes everybody as being wonderful and that we bought into this whole lie of all this nonsense. The start of salvation, how do you come into any of this blessing is acknowledge the truth that all of us, everyone in this room, every person, we have the common sin focus. We all have the same thing in common even though we have so many differences. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us are, are separated from, from our creator because of our sin. All of us are in the act of perishing on our way to a just punishment of eternity in hell. That's where you start. You acknowledge that, and then you repent of that. It means you just confess the truth of that. God, I acknowledge that. That's been a sin against you for first and foremost, and God, I confess that. You say, well, who do I have to say that to? What priest do I have to tell that to? You just, in your mind, God knows everything you're thinking. You can pray it out loud. You can just say it in your God, I confess that's true of me. And then what? What does he say? He says right here, who believes in him and who Jesus, and he will justify the ungodly. Salvation is really not that complicated. Repent of your sin and believe in Jesus, that he's the way, he's the truth, he's life. It's only through his act on the cross, what was celebrated here last weekend, that he paid the price for your sin. He died your death. He bore your punishment. I believe Jesus is the way. I believe in Jesus. I abandon everything and everybody else. I believe in Jesus. God, I trust you. I just believe. I believe. I trust you. I have faith in you. Would you save me? And what will he do? He'll justify the ungodly. He'll declare you not guilty of all your sin. And he'll declare you holy and righteous and is his son or daughter. Such a wonderful statement. It's such a wonderful reminder. But listen, I, I just want to drive it home a little bit more for us. Let me go back to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. You probably, if you've been around church for long, you know it, right? It's so popular. For by what? Grace? You have been saved through faith. And it's not of yourselves, but is a gift of God. Now just think about this, because I've mixed this up far too often in my life. For by grace I'm saved. Do you understand it's not by faith? It's by grace through faith. Now get that clear. My salvation is entirely because God poured out grace. The way that grace was received by me as a gift is through faith. I believe it. But I'm not saved by my faith. I'm saved by grace. Now, why is that important? It's, this is crucial to get straight. Because God's grace, and, and he talks about it in chapter 3 and chapter 5, is abundant, overflowing, never dwindles. God's grace is not dependent on my faith. Do you understand that? 
God's grace is what saves me. We're saved by grace through faith. Let me say it this way. Our justification, being declared not guilty and righteous, is an act of grace, 100%. It's not 25% him, 75% me. It's not 50-50. It's not 95% him and 5% me. It is a gift of grace. I do nothing to merit it or earn it in any way. My salvation, I know you, but 100% of God. Even my faith through which that gift is received, the Bible says is a gift from God. That's why for all eternity, we spend all eternity not patting ourselves on the back and singing songs of how great I am. That's why for all eternity, we spend all of it never tiring of praising God because my salvation is 100% a work of God. All a gift of grace. You understand that's how you got saved. That's how you stay saved. That's everything. It's all him, not us at all. You're saved by grace through this vehicle of believing, of faith. Now here's the thing, but we struggle in our sanctification. We struggle to walk the Christian life. We have bad weeks and good weeks. We're sinning again. We're caught in a cycle sometimes. We're, we're, and what happens is as we're we're trying to become in our walk what we're declared to be before God. I'm declared not guilty and holy. Now I'm trying to live that way in my, my walk and my talk. But as I struggle in that, I get all mixed up. And I start to believe there's no way God could love me. There's no way God could accept me. I'm 56 years old and I'm still struggling with some sins. There's just no way in the world God is not getting ticked with me, irritated with me. I, do you ever like that? Sometimes I, th- like, he's got to be on, I, I like, like, you know, as a parent, you know, you stepped on dad's last nerve and like, oh, you know, sometimes I kind of wonder, is, is, am I down to like one little fiber I'm hanging by? Honestly, I think that way sometimes because of my struggle and my sanctification. And then I lose all of my joy and I certainly can't rest in anything. And I need to have a correction because my salvation has not changed one bit. And God's love has not diminished one iota. His a favor of me. His, oh, but you're in sin. You know, we can't let people go in sin. Listen, we can deal with that, but don't lose the fact my standing does not ever change with God. It is finished. It's complete. He doesn't love me any less because I've had another bad week. Do you get that? That's just so crucial to understand. I'll do better. Here's a quote by, I hope it's okay to quote this guy, John MacArthur. It's okay to quote MacArthur in this church. I read this just the end of the week and I just loved it. Listen to what he says. It was not the greatness of Abraham's faith that saved him but the greatness of the gracious Lord in whom he placed his faith. It's not the intensity of your faith. It's the object of your faith. It's 100% of your acceptance and approval and love by God. He says, faith is never the basis or the reason for justification. I love that. But it's only the channel through which God works his redeeming grace. Faith is simply a convicted heart reaching out to receive God's free and unmerited gift of salvation. 
Do you get that? In your struggles and sanctification, don't allow that to convince you that God doesn't love you anymore. He doesn't accept you anymore. That was settled on the day of your salvation, complete and whole. And also, don't allow your weak faith. I don't know about you, but sometimes my faith, you know the idea of faith of a mustard seed? Are there times where you're like, I wish I had that much, right? I mean, has that ever happened? Am I the only one? There are times like I feel like I got to get down the carpet and crawl under the couch to see if I can find some faith somewhere. Because it's, it's just a struggle at times. And in those times, the same thing as my struggle in sanctification, there's no way God could love me. There's no way he could look with favor upon me. There's no way there's any sort of care from him because my faith right now feels like it's almost evaporated completely. Can I remind you? His approval, his love, his care, his affection is not dependent on your faith. It's dependent on what? Grace. That grace is always abundant. The grace never diminishes as our faith ebbs and flows, as our faith is strong and weak. God's favor, God's love, God's care never does the same thing. It's always full and complete. Why? Because my salvation is not dependent on me, but on Jesus Christ. It's dependent on his work and his accomplishment on the cross. You want rest for the, and hope for the weary. Get off of the performance thing. Now, I'm not saying go live any way you want, but stop believing you have conditional love and acceptance from the Father. Can I just tell you today, as you're his child, he loves you beyond which we could even begin to imagine right now. And that has never changed one bit from the day of your new birth. Regardless of your struggles and sanctification, Regardless of how strong or weak your faith is, can I just affirm for you again from God's word that you are loved with a love that is beyond belief and it never changes. In 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he is what? Faithful. Why? Because God, the way he looks at me and what he thinks of me is not dependent on me. It's dependent on Jesus Christ and his completed, finished work on the cross. I just want to close and show you a video clip. It's by D.A. Carson. I, probably many of you know D.A. Carson. He's a Canadian, actually, and one of these Canadians who left Canada and went to the U.S. And, uh, but he's a brilliant, brilliant man. If, I've heard him preach many times. I have to listen to his sermons five or six times. To, it's just brilliant. It's, it's not that he's like, you can't understand, just so much in his books and his writings and favorite author of many of us and very humble man there and a preacher as well. And, and, uh, and, and so anyway, D.A. Carson, he's involved in a lot of things we're involved in. And, and so I want to show you this clip. And here's my prayer as you watch this clip. I, I think he did this at a John Piper's event or something. I'm not sure. But I, here's my prayer as you watch this. This is a, it's giving an illustration from the Old Testament. And it's my prayer as you watch and listen to this, that God would just sink deep into your heart and soul his unconditional love for you based entirely on the work of Christ and not on anything of your own doing. So let's go ahead and watch this together. Picture two Jews by the name of Smith and Brown, remarkably Jewish names. The day before the first Passover, 
having a little discussion in the land of Goshen. And Smith says to Brown, boy, are you a little nervous about what's going to happen tonight? Brown says, well, God told us what to do through his servant Moses. You don't have to be nervous. Haven't you slaughtered the, the lamb and daubed the two doorposts with blood, put blood on the lintel? Haven't you, you done that? You're all ready and packed to go? You're going to eat the, the whole Passover meal with your family? Well, of course I've done that. I'm not stupid. But it's still pretty scary. When you think of all the things that have happened around here recently, you know, flies and river turning to blood, and it's pretty awful. And, and, and now there's a threat of the firstborn being killed, you know? It's all right for you. You got three sons. I've only got one. And I love my Charlie, and, 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 and the angel of death is passing through tonight, you, you, you know? I, I know what, what God says, and I've put the blood there, but, but it's pretty scary. I'll be glad when this night is over. And the other one responds, bring it on. I trust the promises of God. That night, the angel of death swept through the land. Which one lost his son? And the answer, of course, is neither. Because death doesn't pass over them on the ground of the intensity or the clarity of the faith exercised. But on the ground of the blood of the Lamb. That's what silences the accuser. The blood silences the accuser of the brothers as he accuses us before God. He silences our consciences when he accuses us directly. How many times do we writhe in agony asking if God can ever love us enough, if God can ever care for us enough after we've done such stupid, sinful, rebellious things, after being Christians for 40 years? What are you going to say? Well, you know, God, I, I tried hard, you know? I did, I did my best. It was, a, it was a bad moment. No, 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 no. I have no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. We overcome him by the blood of the Lamb. There is the ground of all human assurance before God. There is the ground of our faith, not guaranteeing intensity of faith, so fickle are we. It's not the intensity of our faith, but the object of our faith that saves. They overcome him on the ground of the blood of the Lamb. Let's pray. Father, thank you for that truth. Jesus, thank you that you paid it all. It's all finished. It's all done. We feel the, the scandal of that, knowing our own sinfulness and our struggle, and even after being saved, knowing how rebellious we can be and self-centered and selfish. And, and yet, thank you. And I just pray you'd bring us back to the truth of your word that we would stand on the truth, not on how we feel and not on how we think. And we pray that as Satan whispers in our ear or our own flesh, and he could never love you. There's no way he could still love you. Father, I pray that the truth of your word would wash over us, that we would experience the rest Jesus called us to, that we would experience the true joy of our salvation. 
That we would delight even in our times of sin and struggle, even when our faith is near non-existent, that we would delight in the truth of the gospel. That you saved us based on the work of Jesus and him alone. That that, that moment when we are born from above, adopted into your family, when you declared us no longer guilty, but now my righteous son or daughter, that that truth would wash over us continually. Father, may that be our identity, where we delight in our weakness. We, 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 we don't have a problem with telling each other, I struggle and I, I still sin. But can I tell you the greatest thing that I've ever known is that God has forgiven me. So I pray that these truths would become our identity as, as individuals, as a church, and that we would offer this grace. We would make this grace known to everybody. We're not calling people to a different lifestyle and a change of how they behave or dress or what they do on a Sunday morning. We're calling people to abandon all of that and to simply fall at the foot of the cross, to confess our sin and to believe in the name of the one who paid it all. May Jesus be made much of. May he increase. We must decrease. We ask this in his name. Amen.